0: Landmine Radio, Landmine Radio, high energy, no filter,
1: oh yeah.
0: This episode of Landmine Radio is sponsored by Guido's Pizza. Located on International Airport Road in Anchorage, Guido's has been serving the best pizza, pasta, sandwiches, and more since 1984. Guido's is open daily for dine-in service from 11 a.m. to midnight, and they do takeout and delivery until 2 a.m., Whether I'm dining in at Guido's or ordering for delivery, the hardest part for me is always choosing what to get, because they have so many amazing items on their menu. If you're looking for a quick bite or want to order food for a big party, Guido's is the place to go. Tell them Jeff from the Landmine sent you. Okay, back here in studio with uh, my friend Dr. Jerome List. How you doing, doctor?
1: Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me.
0: I've had you on the podcast. It was years ago. Several years. And uh, I wanted to have you on again. I just, I'm really sad to hear. I went and and saw you. Uh, I go about once a year to get my ears cleaned out, which... I think a lot of people don't do that, but what do you think? I mean, should people do that? You're you're, you're an ENT, by the way. We should tell people some some people some
1: people uh, develop more wax than other people do, and uh, uh, we know that there's a natural process that the body does to self-clean the ears. Um, Most adults ignore that uh, just simply because they like to put Q-tips and stuff in their ears. I was
0: reading the the uh, earbuds. People who put the earbuds or the headphones, that can, that can create a problem.
1: So the way that the body cleans the ears is that the skin grows from the inside out, kind of like a thumbnail. And then if uh, as the skin grows, it drags the wax with it. And so if you put earbuds, hearing aids... Um, those little foam um, noise protectors—they mm-hmm. all counter what the body is doing, and they push the wax back in. Okay. So then it just builds up more and more and more. So for people who wear hearing aids, I r- usually recommend, for starters, at least once a year, clean their ears out.
0: Okay. Well, um, what I was sad to hear when I went to see you last week was you're closing your business, and yeah. and I thought maybe you're retiring, but it's not that. T- tell me why you're closing your your and you've been in business decades, right?
1: Thirty. Two years here in Anchorage.
0: So let's. I want to talk about that because that, for me that's a big deal because I've been I've been going to you for because I've had the nasal problems and over the years and you've been very very good to go to go see.
1: Well, I think people need to start thinking about this because uh, the landscape of healthcare in not only in Alaska, probably in the United States, maybe even in the world is changing. I think for for the worst, in my opinion. Uh, but uh, um, it's no longer feasible. I mean, a lot of people think that physicians make a lot of money, and a lot of people blame the cost of healthcare care on uh, <clears throat> what physicians charge. But in reality, it's not the case. Um, so for 32 years, I've been running a business in Anchorage. I mean, practicing medicine, you have to run a business. Oh, well, you have to pay the electricity, and you have to pay the rent, and you have to pay the salaries of your staff, and so on and so forth. But in the last six months, I can't generate enough income to pay my overhead,
0: is it less patients or not? No.
1: No. I, a lot of it's just a uh, drop in reimbursement. Insurance? Insurance. A lot of it's insurance companies who just basically they say, we're not going to pay this and they don't pay it. And that's it.
0: How, how much are you doing kind of in office type stuff? And then how much of it is surgery?
1: Well, uh, traditionally I do three days of office work and then uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays, I usually reserve for surgeries. I'm not, a, I'm, not a, I'm not an aggressive surgeon, so I don't do a lot of surgery, but uh, um, volumes have just dropped. I think, I think we saw the beginning after COVID came in, <clears throat> where the municipality uh, stopped us from doing surgery for six weeks. And then it just never recovered after that. We just never had another comeback after that.
0: So, so you're not uh, retiring. You're going to go work somewhere else for, for another practice, right? I'm going to work
1: for somebody else uh, just simply because, again, I can't I can't pay my overhead. I just can't. I, as,
0: as part of it, you know, costs are going up for you know, wages and utilities and all these no, the rents. Th- are I, they going up or is it? I, th-
1: I think just, uh, you know, revenue is decreasing. I mean, we just we're just not getting we just don't. I mean, it's a fight with the insurance company every time we want to bill something to the insurance company. And it's just –
0: How many – what percentage of your patients are using insurance? I assume vast majority?
1: Well, everybody pretty much uses insurance. Every now and then we have self-pay patients, which I really try to help along and try to find resources for them in the community or medications or something like that to be able to help them with it because it's a real – I mean, it's a real hard thing, and you i mean—you've been self-pay before, and you know yeah, how, no, I have, yeah. how hard it is to uh, to pay those medical bills. I mean, it's really, really hard. It's very difficult.
0: So, so do you have? I think you might have used to have somebody, but I know some of these smaller um, clinics or, or smaller offices will have a person whose only job is to deal with insurance, like an insurance. You have to pay that person because they have the expertise to deal with the insurance, which is—it sounds like difficult sometimes.
1: So. So I used to do my billing in, in office, and then I switched to a billing service. And so basically everything that I bill out goes through the billing service, and they collect 6% of that. So for $100, they get $6.
0: So, so but if the insurance, if you do something and person comes in and does some things and then you bill it and the insurance says no, what's... Well, A, how often does it happen? Then B, what's your recourse on that? Do you, can you appeal it? And how does that work?
1: So you can appeal it, but a lot of times they just say no. I mean, it's just, uh, it's just uh, to me, it's a very difficult situation because insurance companies just pretty much dictate what they want to do. And
0: why? why and what are we talking about? Most of the stuff you're doing isn't, um, I mean, it's it's not voluntary. It's People need, they have an eye problem or an ear problem or a, I guess not ear, eye, but like an ear or nose issue or a throat like some, some Correct. Some, it's, it's, or it's cancer not, it's, or it's, trauma
1: it's, or injury. Or, and, I, and I've spread out. I mean, I do a lot of um, not usual uh, things. Uh, I mean, I see all the Department of Correction patients, which I'm not sure who they're going to find to see those patients now. Um, and I do um, vagal nerve stimulators, which basically I'm real concerned about that because I'm the only one in the state doing it. And as I step down, I'm not going to have anybody to do it. So I don't know who's going. They're going to have to go out of state right now. So a lot of this cost-saving uh, measures, presumably the insurance companies are doing, are actually going to wind up being more expensive. And we see that in a lot of different. So,
0: so most of your patients aren't elect isn't aren't elective things, right? I mean, maybe some of them are elective, but most are probably, you know required medical.
1: So as a specialist, a lot of times we do things that are just kind of a one time. If somebody comes in with a, with a nodule on their vocal cord and it's a benign process, you take the vocal cord nodule off and you don't see them again. I mean, they're, they're gone, but it is a, it is, it's not an emergent thing to have that done, but it it requires treatment. And then, um, they're not long, long long-term patients like an internist will see somebody for blood pressure, and you come in in two months, and your blood pressure is still not where you want it to be. And they make some adjustments, and you come back in another two months. We don't often do mm-hmm. that in in, the, in a specialty area. We take care of their problem, and and then they move they move on.
0: So, so um, how many people are – I mean, I guess what, what insurance companies are you mostly dealing with? Primera, Moda? I mean, these are the ones Primera, that I kind
1: of sp- Primera, Aetna. Um, Aetna, Yeah. Uh, and then, the, and then the Medicare and Medicaid, which are the ones that are really because they pay, I mean, 20% on the dollar, I mean, 20 cents on the dollar. I mean, and so basically, um, you basically charge a hundred dollars, they'll pay you $20. Well,
0: what's to prevent you from charging $500? Is, are other other?
1: well, I think there's some people who play the game and they do that and, uh. Um, but they're not going to get reimbursed. I mean, that's the uh, mm-hmm. that's the bottom line. They're, they're just not going to get reimbursed for that, right? I can charge $500. Medicare is still going to pay me $20.
0: So so now some you'll, you'll hear sometimes some doctors won't take Medicare or Medicaid. I mean, do you have to take it or can you not take it?
1: No, you don't have to take it. No, you don't have to take it. But I have a sense of community because I think those people need to be served and they have their mm-hmm. needs. And so in a sense, <clears throat> um, my my approach has been i need to take care of these people and i think that's probably what's put me in a financial uh, you know situation that i'm in right now
0: so if a, if a if a medicare or medicaid patient needs let's say a, a complex surgery for example which which are you know there's a hospital there's a surgery center fee there's an anesthesiologist fee, there's your fee there's your fee are they paying in that case a very like low percentage of of the full cost
1: yeah, it's across the board. I mean, it's not just me, but but um, you know, the facility fee is, and so um, I've had, per, for instance, problems with my vagal nerve stimulators. A lot of those are Medicare. What's a, what's a vagal nerve stimulator? It's for epilepsy. It's a, it's kind of like a cardiac pacemaker, but it's for epilepsy. We hook that up to the vagal nerves, uh, vagus nerve, which um, sends an electrical current to the brain, and it helps reduce the uh, number of seizures that the person oh, has, yes. and so. Um, I've basically almost exclusively do those at uh, Alaska Regional Hospital because the other hospitals and surgery centers, they don't want to deal with the, with, the, uh, with, the ty- with the profile of patients that, that need the vagal nerve stimulators. So it's, it's – um, What do you
0: mean the prof- profile, is it?
1: Most of them are Medicare or Medicaid. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, is, is that part of the reason things are so expensive? I just got my appendix out I told you about in October – I was in the hospital for 20 hours. I mean, I, I got in at 3:30. I waited a couple hours. I was out by you know 1 p.m. the next day. So 22 hours. It wasn't even a full 24 hours. I get the bill. You know, a month later, it's fifty five thousand dollars. They then they write off fifteen or twenty because it's like Primera or whatever. But still, I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me why it should cost that much for. I mean, think about the average cost of like a the average wage in this country or whatever. I mean. I just see is that why it's so high because they, they, you bill more bill more bill more you want to get reimbursed more is that part of it or
1: so a number of years ago um, there was a uh, I, I'm not a business person but I, I, I learned this from there was a, a um, CEO for an anesthesia group here in town anesthesiologist and so he, he ran the the business part of the anesthesia group and so he told me you know these things are pretty easy to figure out all you have to do is go and um, Add up your expenses, i.e., you know, malpractice insurance, um, uh, uh, payroll, rent, uh, and all the incidentals and all the other things. And then divide that per the number of hours that you see patients in the office. And that'll give you how much it costs you just to keep the doors open, not to get a salary or not to make any money, but just to keep the business going. And um, – so if it costs me $100 an hour, for instance, to keep the doors open and I get reimbursed 20, 20, $20 from Medicare and Medicaid, I mean, I can't I can't pay my overhead. And that's what's happening to me right now.
0: What are the right reimbursements for like Aetna and Premier? Are they higher?
1: So they're higher. The private insurance companies are higher, but they still are not sufficient. I mean, I can't offset. And because of I've because i've agreed and think that it is important to see the medicare and the medicaid patients then i have a i have a high number of medicare and medicaid patients and so th- are
0: other do- are other doctors friends of yours or are, are i mean are similar things happening
1: so some other doctors would just say we won't see medicaid patients or others will say we only see two a month or others will say we only see four a month or something like that but they restrict the number of because they can't they can't pay their bills as as long as they're getting the reimbursement from those I mean, in, in
0: Alaska a, a large a large percentage of the population is on medicaid or medicare
1: that's correct it's, and, it's and small,
0: i don't know the numbers, but it's not small
1: and they deserve to have health care just like anybody else i mean i don't discriminate because They're in jail or they're in no matter what. I mean, it just doesn't make any difference. So when you
0: go to this new um, practice, are you still going to be able to, do they have different policies on?
1: uh, I don't know specifically, but I'm sure they do. I'm sure they're going to be more restrictive because they're a viable practice. And if if you see all Medicare and Medicaid patients across the board, you're going to be closing your doors just like I am.
0: What were you, what were you seeing 10 years ago, 20 years ago? I mean, was it, was it better? I mean, has it gotten worse, I guess?
1: it's gotten worse because i could pay my overhead. I mean, i could make a living. I could i could put food on my table. I can't do that anymore. I just i just simply cannot do it. And that's happened, I'm going to say in the last 2 to 3 years. Um, for me, started looking at the books because when things started getting tight, then I started looking at the books and the past 6 months I do not I do not generate enough revenue to be able to pay my expenses. Do you,
0: you think COVID has had a, a big impact on this?
1: I, I I I think that was kind of the beginning of the end in my, in my opinion is where I started kind of really down sliding was when COVID came along. And, uh, and, and one of the big, uh, again, one of the big things for that was that, um, uh, again, the municipality put a restriction on doing surgeries. So for six weeks, I wasn't able to operate and for a surgeon. Uh, b- basically some of your, a lot of good part of your revenue comes from surgery. From doing surgery, so I was not able to do that for six weeks, and it just kind of—I think it just kind of snowballed down from there, and it just went downhill from there.
0: Have you seen, you know, with COVID and after, less people coming to see you? I mean, just maybe less people are going to the doctor.
1: So some people have, have tried not to come to the doctor. Um, I mean, I I try to look at the other side of that coin. I mean, I've I've risked my own personal health, you know, because I see a lot of COVID patients, particularly at uh, Saint Elias Hospital. Um, and, uh, and, uh, basically the volume of patients is coming down, reimbursement is coming down. And so I survived COVID myself, exposing myself to a lot of COVID patients. And, uh, and it was, it was, it was not, it it was not, I mean, there was, there was no reward for that. I mean, I just, I think unnecessarily exposed myself to a lot of COVID and did not, did not receive any, uh, help for that. Mm
0: -hmm. What, what's your, I mean, Take on, on on I guess what happened with COVID—not COVID itself, but you know the masking and the shutdowns and all of the, the things that went on for you know two years.
1: Well, those are personal opinions and probably not. I mean, I'm probably not the person to be saying that, but I I resent a little bit of how the government has stepped in and restricted um, uh, private businesses and have put a lot mm-hmm. of people out of business and so on and so forth. A lot of, I mean, it's hurt. It's I think we're starting to see the economy. And again, I'm not a business person, and I'm I i do not have particular knowledge in in uh, global economy and what have you. But I think I think I think we're starting to see some of the uh, the downfall from the how the economy was hurt from COVID. I think we're starting to see it right now.
0: So so when you so you're you're closing up pretty soon, right? Your your, your business. My last
1: day is December 29th.
0: So that's uh, you know I guess four, three days.
1: Three days, right? I have I have tomorrow Wednesday. Thursday and Friday. I have three days left to work in the office.
0: So, when you go to this new practice, uh, you are just going to be basically a salaried person, doctor, or are you going to so there.
1: So the so the reimbursement scheme there will be: I'll get a percentage of what I bill. In other words, if I bill one hundred, I am not. We we haven't even talked about percentages, but mm-hmm. I just it doesn't make any difference because I can't I can't continue to pay out of my pocket to come to work. Yeah, I mean, but, but
0: there you'll have no overhead.
1: I'll have no overhead. I mean, they'll take care of the overhead. So, well, that's
0: just too bad because I've been coming to see you for ten years. I feel like
1: well, and, I, I, yeah, ten years. I I think our medical system, <clears throat> unfortunately, and I'm I'm seventy four, so I need to kind of be slowing down, and um, I think that our system does not really. I mean, I'm the most experienced. I'm the most senior otolaryngologist in the state of Alaska, and I'm and I'm very dedicated to my community. I'm very committed to my community, but. There's no way of kind of slowing down and using that expertise. Um, f- nobody wants me. I mean, I'm I'm done. I'm dead meat. I'm just I'm gone. I mean, it's just the, there is no there's no utilization of the people who have the most experience. In my opinion, I mean, um, once you step down, you basically are gone. You're you're out of the you're out of the equation. And I think that's probably not only in medicine but in other areas where the most expert people. You know, just they just get swept under the carpet once they're once they reach their well, age. Yeah,
0: well, they also, you know, they work, I would assume, you know, most cases more expensive, you know, for like a, like an accountant. I don't know, somebody who's, you know, on the top of their game might, might, you know, maybe somebody wants to go to somebody else who might be, you know, cheaper.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, some people p- prefer the the younger, but but the bottom line is in, in, in my opinion, I mean, I think experience is, is counts a lot. And I have a lot of experience. Yeah. I've been around for a long time. I mean, I've I'm <clears throat> I mean, I've worked in other countries, you know about that. And so I I've done a lot of volunteer work. I've done <clears throat> I've been involved with Anchorage Project Access. I've been involved yeah, with, know, yeah. with Faces Foundation in Peru. And we've done a lot of cleft flip and cleft palate uh, work. Yeah, you were telling
0: me down there that a lot of these – some of these kids are born in these communities and they, they never they have a cleft palate. And, and, and you know, in the West or most places where um, there's like medicine available, you get it fixed. Immediately, where if you don't get Correct. it fixed, then you're you have this really kind of deformity on your on your nose and your lip.
1: So we saw a patient in Peru one time. The patient was 32 years old and had never. We don't know what the natural progression of these diseases are. We don't know what they look like. You know, 32 years out from from birth, and so we had the opportunity to examine and evaluate and treat a 32 year old who had never been treated. Uh, what,
0: what happens with that? I mean, does it affect speech and all?
1: Speech and swallowing are the, are the two big issues. And uh, unfortunately, because that person was so old, um, they never had uh, an outstanding improvement in their speech and their swallowing. So, oh, wow. so that was just simply partly because the body adjusts to it or adapts to it. But that was a learning experience for us because we'd never seen that. I mean, we had nobody, nobody in our team had ever seen something like that.
0: Yeah, I think we talked about this last time, but for for the folks listening who didn't listen to the last one, you have a really interesting history. You, uh, you kind of one of your parents was from Costa Rica, right? Or, That's right. That's correct. So you grew up in Costa Rica, and, and you actually went to medical school in Russia, in Soviet Union.
1: No, I I went to dental school in Costa Rica, and then I went. I did an oral surgery residency in the Soviet Union.
0: Oh, Okay, that's right. Yeah, but it's interesting because you speak Russian. We all speak Russian. And Correct. You were there in the, I guess, what, what,
1: what, what, 74 through 77, which was right.
0: So that was like, was it the Brezhnev year? I mean, that was yep. kind of the. Yep. Got kind of, a little bit kind of got great. So right. they probably all thought you were Because you, you're you American, too. And you have, you speak, so you probably, th- how many times I think you were like a spy or something? Or how many, many times? When you, when you came back.
1: So the funny thing was that I had a scholarship through the government of Costa Rica because I was then living in Costa Rica. And, um, some of the Costa Rican people were a little bit nervous because they say, "Oh, this guy's a CIA spy. What's he doing down here?" And what, even though my mother is native Costa Rican, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so when I got back from the Soviet Union, then now he's a double agent because I was, uh, you know, from the United States and I lived in the Soviet Union, and so it was uh, it was a double it was a double whammy. So,
0: so, so you started with with dental, but then Correct. you you, you kind of later went back and you so you were a dentist at first, but then you went, became an ENT. Correct. What what. What prompted that? I mean, that's a. I mean, I guess it's still the mouth. Well, face, I did. The, the I head.
1: did. I did oral surgery at the Pavlov Medical Institute, and um, that's kind of the head and neck surgery. We did cancer, and we did trauma, and we did a lot of that stuff. And so that's Moscow. That was in St. Petersburg. Okay, right. And so the the natural progression from that was to go into medical school, and then go to EN, do ENT because ENT was the most closely related thing that I had. So again, I think all that training was additive. It was not like I did, you know, I went to law school and then I went to medical school. I mean, it was the oral surgery part that I, uh, training that I received in, in the Soviet union was very closely related to what I do right now.
0: What was it like, you know, doing medicine in the Soviet union? I mean, I, I think people, I've been there and as you all know, I went there years ago and I had my friend's mother-in-law was a head, head of a hospital and I used to have these nasal polyps that I've, I want to talk about this new drug you found, this Dupixin, but it was, you know, it's expensive here to have a surgery and remove them and it's like insurance and all these things we talked about. Um, I had a lady there that saw me that was an, an ENT with a, the Cyclops eye thing on her head, you know, and she was actually, she was going to come come down here and she ended up not wanting to do it, she was going to, you were going to host her. She's And ENT, an, Galina Mihalovna's is her name. Got it. And she just got with a snare and just and numbed me up and yanked those things out and, and I told you about it. and You were kind of like, "Oh my god!" You know, we, we haven't done that for a long. But, right, but right. My, my response is like, that worked. Not, maybe not as good as a full surgery, but it's still, you know, it was a solution. But but it, I think here, there is so much maybe worry about malpractice and about doing things that aren't really maybe well. It's um, it's it's not anymore.
1: It's the way we're trained, and basically, maybe to jump the gun a little bit on on, on this question is basically. I thought the uh, the Soviet doctors were very good. They're very trained. They're very conscientious. They're very hardworking. They did not have the equipment or the resources uh-huh. to do a lot of the work that they needed to do. And that was that was their biggest limitation, in my opinion. Now, mind you, that was 35, 40 years ago, so I'm not sure. I th- My daughter is a general surgeon in, in St. Petersburg, and so the situation probably continues to be fairly similar as it was before. And the biggest issue is not training not uh, knowledge not not research it was basically uh, equipment mm-hmm. um, facilities uh, i mean i remember we had two operating uh, two operating beds in one room
0: oh at the same time at the same time that's probably right. bad, bad for carriers well or ger- I've,
1: I've never heard of that in the united no. states ever and we also had windows in the operating room. They're called Fortuchka. You remember that? It's a Russian word for a small window. Yeah, yeah, for, yeah fortotchka. So they, so there were two fortotchkas in the in the in the, in the op, this operating room that had two beds in it. And Why that's, they have those? That's just because all the buildings were built with <laughs> fortuchkas and and the Russians actually used those for um, you know as a as a refrigerator in the winter time. You'd see their little plastic bags hanging out of the mm-hmm, fortuchka yeah. to to hold their their. Produce or, and their uh, eggs and stuff like that. Yeah.
0: So when you came back, where, where did you where you be, go to school for ENT?
1: So I came back to Costa Rica and uh, uh, presumably I was going to work in oral surgery, but um, politics would have it that um, they they were now. I mean, they used this excuse that I was a double agent, and so they made life very difficult for me. And so they really uh,
0: thought you were a spy.
1: Well, they, you know, politics where, are politics. I mean, people, where were you? <laughs> I had I had no political interest. I had no religious interest. I had nothing other than medical interest, and so they made it very difficult for me. And so, um, one of my mentors in dental school had done training in Oregon, and um, he hooked he he uh, got me hooked up with the chairman of the oral surgery department and at the U- Oregon Health Sciences University in Portland. And so they offered me a teaching position there. And so I came back to the United States to teach, to teach. Was, was it
0: difficult at all with your training being, you know, in, in Costa Rica and working in I mean, don't they a lot of times want you to have like American training or is that not really well, a barrier? that
1: Well, that was one of my thoughts. And I thought in in uh, in Costa Rica that if I had, you know, some exposure to the American system and I'd go back to Costa Rica, I'd be better received and so I worked in Portland. They offered me a permanent job there. And I said, well, I still have a commitment with the Costa Rican government because the the, um, the scholarship to the Soviet Union was actually to the Costa Rican people. I mean, it was – and I felt a moral obligation to return mm-hmm. um, what had been given to the people of Costa Rica. So I had, a, I had a kind of a moral commitment to go back. And so after six months, I went back to Costa Rica and I said, okay, now – I've uh, worked in the United States environment. I know uh, how things work over there. And they said, well, we, we're not going to offer you a job. We're not going to give you a position. So you,
0: where did you grow up? Where did you grow up?
1: Costa Rica. You grew up there? I grew up there.
0: But you're, I mean, your English is like, per, you're, one of your parents speak English? How do you?
1: So my father was a, <laughs> this is, this is. Uh, See, you know, I always
0: thought you grew up here and the moved there when you were older. Oh, I didn't no, I moved you. there
1: when I was three or four somewhere around there. You were
0: were born in U.S.
1: I was born in Oklahoma. And um, so it turns out that my dad was a a fighter pilot during the Second World War. And he was stationed in the Panama Canal. And conveniently, his airplane broke down in Costa Rica in one of his trips to for maintenance back to the United States. And so he met my mother there. And that's that's how that happened.
0: Wow. (laughs) So she came back to the United States
1: she came back to the United States but she didn't she didn't like it I guess you missed and so eventually they went back eventually we moved back and that's when I moved to Costa Rica we we drove from uh, from Missouri which is where we were living at the time down to Costa Rica in 1950s was it 56 or 54 I can't remember the exact date but we drove we drove down there all the way there were parts in Mexico where there were no roads we had to put the, car, the vehicles on a train I mean it was it was pretty pretty
0: So so, so since since you were 3 until you, you you were in Costa Rica. Correct. So was Spanish your first kind of Yeah,
1: so our, my dad really made an made an issue at home for us to speak English because he was afraid that we were going to lose our English.
0: What did he do down there? Did he work or did he
1: So my da- um my dad had been a pilot during the Second World War and a lot of the um mili- after the war was over, a lot of the um a lot of the air force pilots uh took up with pan am and they took jobs you know flying commercially mm-hmm. and i guess my mother objected to that didn't want him to to be flying commercially and so he i think he became frustrated because he really didn't find his job down there and came back to the states so and then he was a pilot no no he left he 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 quit the he was not he was not flying when he came back to the states i mean he'd already let that go
0: so so your first language is Spanish, right?
1: Spanish is my native tongue. I, I say my, my 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 native tongue is Spanish, right?
0: Did you when when you were younger, did you cuz you have no accent. I mean nobody if somebody met you right now, they'd have no way of knowing you were a Spanish speaker
1: first but language. I'm, but if I go to Costa Rica now, it's usually maybe a couple of days or a couple of weeks before my Spanish really loosens up and people say mm-hmm even though i know a lot of slang i mean i can i can i can uh, i can fool people pretty easily but it but it, you get a little rusty and so because i don't use spanish all the time even though i have a lot of patients in my practice i was going to
0: ask you how often do you can you, you speak russian very well too
1: yeah but russians don't go to doctors
0: that's they don't <laughs> that's true you're right they don't go as much
1: the russians don't go to doctors and so i mean i i say that they do but but there,
0: there's some russian doctors here there's uh what's her name i think is it grimberg G- G- galina the, the the obgyn she's kind of Oh, um, uh, I think it's Galina. She's kind of well known, right? In the Russian community, but there, there's some, there's a few Russian doctors. I'm sure you probably know them. Yep, some of them. Right. Well, I'm really sad to hear your. I mean, I'm. I'm you're, where where are you going? You're going to in Eagle River. Or?
1: So my the group that I'm going to be working with, they're opening up an, an office in Eagle River. So I'll be running that office out there in Eagle River. Well, right? Hopefully,
0: I can. I'm going to just transfer with you because I, I, I like coming to so, see you. So,
1: so the one caveat is that I'm 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 going to stop doing surgery. And so uh, that's, kind of a, that's kind of a big transition for me. And this whole process is very difficult. I mean, I'm not sure if this is the purpose of this talk today, but for me it's just...
0: No, no, it, it definitely is, yeah.
1: For you to dedicate your whole life to doing something that you've um, trained a lot for, you've spent a lot of time, you've traveled a lot, you've been exposed to you know cultural issues and so on and so forth, and then all of a sudden you're not going to be doing it. And so it's very difficult for me mentally is to say, well, I'm stepping down. Yeah. It's very, very difficult, but it's time. I mean, it's just, it's just, I've been in a lot of leadership positions and that's always been a big question. Um, You know, pilots have a certain age limit at which they have
0: 65. They're actually trying to talk about raising that now because there's a a shortage of pilots and, and the max, the forced retirement is 65 for, 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 you know, commercial pilots.
1: And I'm a private pilot and I would say that if I had a, 65 year old pilot or a 35 year old flying me somewhere I'd want the 65 year old that's just, more experience that's yeah. just that's just my personal opinion right I I, I, I think a lot of people would uh, disagree with me on that I wouldn't but but same thing with a surgeon I mean if I go to a doctor I'd rather go to the 65 year old doctor than the 35 year old doctor mm-hmm. and that's again that's just my my opinion and 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 uh, people may respectfully disagree with me on that.
0: Um, last thing I want to ask you about or talk about is, is, you know, I've told people I've had this kind of nasal polyp issue, which is not uncommon. You know, it blocks your kind of breathing and your ability to smell, and it's miserable. And, you know, I had them when I was 19, I had a surgery, and then I had another with you I had a surgery, and they tend to come back. And And then for a while I was coming to see you, and it was, I was getting like a Kenalog injection directly, which would – you know, for a few months, solve it, but then they'd come back and right. the quality of life is miserable. So about two years ago, you, um, I guess through just paying attention to things, you said there's a drug out. Um, that There was never really any medicine for these nasal polyps called Dupixent. And, and it's a monoclonal antibody, which is one of these very expensive drugs that targets something in your, you know, kind of body. And I, I tried it, very expensive, but I tried it. You gave me a sample. And I mean you hear the term miracle drug, it's a fucking miracle drug. I mean, I don't know what it's doing. I know it targets like a protein and there's some inflammation, but I mean, what, what, I mean, ever since I've been taking it, it's twice every two weeks, it's an injection and, it you know, a little bit uncomfortable, not too bad, but like, what, what is, what is this drug and what, and how many people do you know and you're that have dealt with my issues or are, are using that?
1: So uh, it's, you know, new technology comes along and, and, uh, I think the pharma industry has been very proactive. I'm concerned about all the issues going around the pharmaceutical companies because they are being pinched and saying that they're charging too much for their drugs and this and that and the other. However, I mean they still do a lot of research and they still investigate and bring in new drugs and new technology, you know, to the field of medicine. Dupixent being one of them. Dupixent have been around. It's been used for asthma um, a lot, um, and, and then
0: and it was used for skin skin issues, right? Like. Eczema or dermatitis?
1: Correct. For a variety of things. And, and to basically, but they have to have their FDA approval. And so the, the medication may be available, um, but not, not approved for use. And by the way, I, I, ex, I, I did some research in the Soviet Union with some uh, uh, cancer medications that were not available here in the United States. So when I came back, they were not available. But a lot of it just depends on whether we have FDA approval you know, for it or not. But, but Dupixent got an FDA approval for nasal polyposis, which is basically a disease where <clears throat> a person – we don't entirely understand. I think there's a lot of unknowns why people, some people develop these nasal polyps. Mostly men, right? Um, women too, but mostly men. I think it's more predominant in men. Um, some of the conferences that I've been to, uh, because it's usually the ENTs who are um, prescribing these um, – uh, basically, the the philosophy of the um, university centers is that they won't prescribe them unless they've had surgery done before. I'm not sure there's a scientific basis for that, but that's just kind of the general um, idea. So if you've had problems with nasal polyps and you're um, um, and you're you're a candidate because they keep that's the problem with the polyps is that they keep coming back.
0: And I had surgery when I was nineteen. And then I had surgery. I guess when I was about thir- in two 2000- thousand with you, twenty fourteen, I think. So I had surgery twice. And the first time I had surgery, they came back within, you know, a few years. And then I didn't have insurance, and I was in school, so I kind of just had to live with it. And it was a really, really miserable quality of life. You know, breathing and smelling, and, and really the breathing part is like the, the the worst part. You can't breathe through your nose.
1: So there's. So, so my indications for surgery are whether the person has trouble breathing through their nose and their smell is out, and or their asthma gets worse because a lot of these people, a lot of people have asthma along with it, and so. Um,
0: well, I never had asthma, but I had the kind of, I guess, maybe the rhinocyte. like the, the I was always stuffed up. Correct. And and this this basically fixed that too. I mean, I still have that a little bit, but I mean, it was it was pretty amazing. I mean, I took the the injection the first day, and I was like like the next day I was fine. It was amazing. I mean, it was just, it's just, I mean, when you live for something for, for so long, years and years and years, decade, you know, and then all of a sudden like, bam, it's fixed. I mean, it's just incredible.
1: It's a a great medication. I think you pointed out the two downsides of it. One is that you have to um, self-administer an injection every two weeks, number one, and two, it's very, very expensive.
0: It's like, you know, 3000 a month. Now, now they, they do a little bit of, Help with the, you know because I have a high deductible. I have the the help exchange Obamacare. It's high deductible you know deal because I'm self employed. But um, they they do pay a portion of of the copay, which is not you know which is they help you out a little bit because it's, it's expensive. But I mean, how many people have have you? I assume other people have
1: not not very many. I mean, people are just they're just stopped by the by the by the expense usually is usually what'll stop them. Right? But
0: for other people that have tri- tried it, I mean, have, have they had the same?
1: Yeah, they outcome? have they have very good results, right? They have very good results, and now there are some other companies coming in with parallel drugs, and so that once the the, the door opens, and I think that the pharmaceutical companies think it's a profitable medication, they will develop. I, uh, the only
0: downside, like you said, is is you have to, and it's it comes frozen, it comes like cooled, and you have to put it in the fridge, and you have to, do, you know, inject it in your leg every every two. Weeks. So maybe great if it was like an oral, you like a pill, but I guess it doesn't really maybe hit the receptors.
1: Well, I guess a pill would get deactivated in the stomach. The problem is that anything you put inside your mouth goes into your stomach and the stomach deactivates mm-hmm. most medications, a lot of bugs and viruses and things like that get deactivated well, they, in the they, stomach.
0: They've actually um, changed. So for the first year, it was like a, an EpiPen almost type thing. It was a, it was a kind of a, a pen and you push it down and it, and it auto injects and it was kind of pain. It was pretty painful. I mean, it was about 10 seconds and it didn't feel very good. Now they've started um, to give these syringes with a very, very, very sharp needle, which looks scarier, but 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 you don't even really feel, I mean, you barely feel it going in your leg. And then you have a, a plunger and it, it's a little uncomfortable, but it's it's much less painful than the, the pen syringe thing. And like I said, I, 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 I'm really glad you, I don't know how you, in, through medical journals or through conferences or how you heard about it, but... It, it is. It is. the I mean, for me, it's the miracle drug, because because I've I've had no. Pro- I mean, I haven't come to see. I mean, I used to come and see you every you know, right. three months right. To, right. to get these right. get these things kind of reduced. But then they they would they, they
1: would always come back. Well, it's just new technology, and if you stop the medication, they're probably going to come back. That's I mean, what I
0: was going to ask you. If I I wonder because because I was reading up on it. and There's a protein. What's it called? Interleukin. I think it's what it's called, and it, it targets that, and that's maybe inflammation. You know, it's causing those. Can your body eventually figure out that that's...
1: I don't know that we have enough research or enough uh, experience to tell you whether that... But my prediction would be if you stop the medication, they're probably going to come back. I mean, that's my that's my prediction right now. But, it, I mean, who knows? Again, I don't think we've had enough people do that to know exactly what's yeah. going to happen, right? So you, well, might, you might be our guinea pig. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to stop because, I mean, <laughs> I, I tell you, being able to oh, yeah. s-
0: just... I mean, when you, when you haven't been able to smell for so long and then you can... It's like everything all of a sudden is just amazing, you know, For when you go by years of not being able to smell anything or, or taste food even. It affects that too, the same thing.
1: So I, I, probably 90% of your taste is actually smell. And, mm-hmm. so, and so we've seen this. Fortunately, with COVID, we've had uh, viruses attack the olfactory bulb. And your situation is a little bit different because the polyps block the air going up into the olfactory area. Yeah. But with the virus, and we've had viruses around that attack the olfactory bulb. But with the COVID, we've seen a lot more of this. And we've done a lot of research. We've learned a lot of things about smell since COVID. Fortunately, the, vi- the COVID virus is usually a short-lasting uh, event of that.
0: Yeah, because I've had a lot of friends who got COVID and couldn't smell, but it came back. Now, Correct. Did, have some people, has it not come back? Have, yes. you, have you seen that?
1: Yes, yes, absolutely.
0: Oh, it's just, I, if you've never lost your smell, you, you can't appreciate how, how important smell is.
1: So I've never lost my smell, but I've dealt with enough patients to have a high respect for it. And so yeah. it's one of those, um, I, I call it a socially not accepted disability. It's a disability. It's a disability.
0: Well, it's also scary if you're in a situation where maybe there's a gas or something. And like, I've been in situ when I couldn't back before I couldn't smell with, you know, you're somewhere and somebody's like, do you smell gas? And I go, well, I don't. And nobody really knows unless you tell people. So it's not something they can see. You know, they can't see that you can, you know, you can't smell. So yeah, it could be, it could be even, you know, be
1: dangerous. Absolutely. And it's uh, one of the, one of the things that sticks in my mind, and this is not dangerous, but mom's, who have lost their sense of smell and they have babies and they can't smell their dirty diapers. Yeah. yeah, And so, so they're, exactly. they're in public and they're embarrassed because they can't tell that their child has a dirty diaper because they can't smell it.
0: no. something else I want to ask what you were telling me that this has happened to me very, very rarely, but and I, other people I've talked to have, have had it where just, you know, very intermittently you'll get like a sharp kind of pain in your face, you know, like a pure, I don't know what it is, but I was telling you about this one time and, and you were telling me you once had a patient that had something where you had to, they had to come see you for for some kind of shot or something, right? Every, because they have this really like
1: sharp. So the face and the, the head and neck area is very well endowed with nerves. And uh, um, every now and then the nerves malfunction. We don't 100% understand some of the mechanisms. It's probably different for different people. But you're talking about trigeminal neuralgia or yeah, tick, yeah. Tick, tick de la rue. So I
0: looked that up after you told me. And, and what is what is that?
1: So the theory that I subscribe to the most is something called a gating theory, and that is that we think that nerves that bring messages back to the brain, okay, so there are two kinds of nerves. They're nerves that take messages from the brain out to the muscles and make them move, or uh, nerves that bring sensations back to the brain, and those would be sensory nerves, and so they malfunction. Like pain? Well, it could be pain. It could be burning. It could be pressure. It could be a variety of things. But basically, they bring messages back to the brain, and so they're separate nerves. They don't run together. They're different. They're their anatomy. They're they're, but every now and then, one of those uh, malfunctions, and I think that they let in uh, sensations or they create sensations that are not necessarily there. One of the things, <clears throat> and. and again this is a complicated topic because we don't know some of this is probably in the brain area perhaps because one of the early ways of this is before my time of dealing with uh, these conditions was actually to ablate the nerve or to kill the nerve or destroy the nerve and what we have what they found was that that doesn't really work that they're going to continue to have you know the painful sensation. If you
0: destroy the nerve, do you lose that sensation or do you lose...
1: You would. You would lose the sensation of the distribution of that nerve, but basically it doesn't really help with the overall, you know, condition. So, so, so it's a, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff going on, you know, with it.
0: So for, for to to deal with this, you you were saying sometimes you have to like inject something or you have to...
1: So my approach has been injections. I mean, um, I've had some patients where we have them on heavy pain medication because they, I mean some of these people, they can't, they can't live. I mean, they just basically, they can't stand this. I mean, it's, 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 it's terrible. It's a horrible disease. And so <clears throat> the injection numbs the nerve, and I think it allows the nerve to kind of reset itself mm-hmm. and uh, start functioning better. For some people, it works fairly quickly. For other people, I had, I've had several patients where I gave them injections because that was the only thing that would relieve them. I had a gentleman... <clears throat> um, who's since passed away. But basically, the only thing that would allow him to have any quality of life was doing these nerve injections. He'd been all over the country. He had all kinds of different procedures, um, neurosurgical procedures, where they decompress the Gasserian ganglion, which is in the brain. And uh, nothing worked. Nothing worked. How
0: long would this injection last? Like
1: Usually, for him, it was a couple of days. So I was injecting him three times a week. Oh, my gosh. Yeah.
0: So this guy can't even probably go anywhere. Somebody in that situation so, can't really travel.
1: So he couldn't, and so he had a cabin out in Bush, Alaska. And I was, I had got my pilot's license by then, and so I'd actually fly out to his cabin and give him the injections. Oh wow! He was so he was so miserable. He was it was it's just real sad to see a person in that much pain, and a simple injection would take care of it.
0: It's just so incredible what medicine. You know, some of the things. I mean, back in hundreds of years, I mean, people were just you know probably just go crazy or die. I mean, some of these diseases are Absolutely. even like my, my appendix thing, you know, I mean, that's it. You probably just, you probably, up. you
1: probably would have died. Right. You know, you're, 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 you're,
0: you're dead. Right. Well, Dr. Liss, it's always good talking to you. I'm, I'm really, I'm sad to hear, I'm, I'm glad to hear you're still going to be practicing, but I'm, I'm I'm sad to hear you're, this is happening with, you know, we talked about all this stuff with your, your office and your, but I think, um, you know, I, I, I was doing some research on this after we talked and after last week and, uh, I, I think this is a p- pattern with with smaller, you know, op- I think, offices. I,
1: th- I think single practice offices are going to be a thing of the past. I'm going to say maybe in five to seven years from now. I don't, I don't. You you just you just can't exist. It just doesn't. The numbers just don't pan out on on paper. They just they just don't work. And so I think it's a sad. I mean, it's just a change. I mean, we're 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 changing. But the thing that saddens me is that. um Years of expertise and years of experience are just basically going out the door, and they're not appreciated. Again, I think our system does not appreciate that. Um, maybe I'm just saying that because I'm at the, <laughs> I'm at the end of my career now, and and uh, but I think it's sad because I still have a lot to offer, and I just feel like I've been truncated. I, I've just been cut off from 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 providing to my community, from providing to my people, from providing to the people who need the services that I'm trained to do. Well,
0: you, 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 you greatly improved my quality of life because, you know, if I don't, wasn't taking this drug and I don't know what I'd be doing, you know, I'd just be miserable. So I'm very thankful that I, so I'm happy.
1: I'm happy that's worked for you. I mean, that's, 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 I mean, we go to medical school. I guess some people go to medical school as they think they're gonna make a lot of money. I, I, they need to open their eyes and realize that that's no longer the case. Um, but I, 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 I mean, that's what I do. I mean, I, I, I like helping people. And sometimes it's more successful than other times and you're more gratified. I'm, My satisfaction is not looking at a bank account or something like this. It's how the patients are doing, yeah. how, how we're doing with that. And that's, that's really – Well,
0: that's, that's what it should be about for yeah, everybody.
1: Well, the, but times are changing because you still have – I'm very concerned now about my financial situation um, – I mean, there's no forgiveness with your taxes. There's no forgiveness for anything, and I'm 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 very concerned on how I'm going to survive after I close the office. I just don't know how I'm going to do it. I, I'm really I'm really scared. I'm very scared.
0: Well, um, I hope the ne- next place you know works out for you, and I, I think your patients probably going to go with you because you're such a you've been such such a good doctor, and so so good to so good to see over the years.
1: So thanks for having me over again. Some of this is just of. Uh, 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 helpful for me to be able to vent some of my frustrations and, no, and some of the totally. things, that because I've been around for a long time and I just, I have a lot of built up um, um, I just feel sad about this whole situation I feel sad.
0: Maybe, maybe it's time to start your own podcast <laughs> Maybe. Dr. List know, podcast
1: I, I'm, I'm not I'm not going to compete with you, you're too good at it. No, no, I, <laughs> I,
0: I, I listen to it Dr. <laughs> List, thanks again for coming in, I'll, thanks I'll be for seeing having... you, and uh, if, if folks want to uh, ever get a hold of you? Um, I guess I can look you up in your new practice down down the road. Yeah, my but, phone
1: number is going to be the same. It'll be uh, just forwarded to the new practice right. that I'm going to be in. So
0: yeah, I mean, for my friends listening, and I've talked to a lot of friends who have had these sinus, and you know, they just never go and see anybody. And I say, I say, go see an ENT, you know, because sometimes it might be as simple as just getting some some small thing done, or maybe taking some medicine or whatever. And I think a lot of people just kind of learn to live with some of these like ear ear or nose issues, you know, and um, I always tell people to go, go if they have an issue like that go see an ENT.
1: So perhaps with the exception of cancer my philosophy has been do the simple things first and then kind of work up from there. Mm-hmm. And so I'm again as I mentioned earlier I'm not an aggressive surgeon but basically you want to do the simple things first and see if that works and get your yeah. gets you in good standing.
0: Well thanks again Dr. Liz. happy happy new year. Love love having happy you on and we'll, uh, mm-hmm. we'll 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 talk to you again. Folks All if right. you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.